0: You are listening to The Light of Today with the powerful, life-changing Word of Christ that heals, delivers, transforms, and fills you with the Holy Spirit. Let God's truth burst forth into your heart. Stay tuned to The Light of Today with Chris Palmer. One of the biggest problems that I had growing up inside the church is I didn't understand what the kingdom of God is. There's a lot of teaching that goes on in the kingdom of God. People say, oh, you know, the kingdom is this, and the kingdom is that. And the thing is, we preach the kingdom nowadays in bits and pieces. You have different aspects of the kingdom, and you are dealing with a subject that is very, very enormous in Scripture. It's, the framework of it is humongous. And so what happens inside of the body of Christ is somebody may understand a piece of it, but not understand the whole thing. They may understand um, part of it. For instance, miracles are we're going to see in this study is a part of the Kingdom of God. The coming of the Holy Spirit is part of the Kingdom of God. The Son of God, the names of Jesus Christ are part of the Kingdom of God. We could preach all of these in and of themselves, but they're brush strokes on a canvas. And what I want to do is give you the these brush strokes and tell you what they mean, but in this study, what I want you to catch is to see the bigger picture of what the kingdom is. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. How many can say they know what the kingdom is? If I said to you, What is the kingdom of God? What would people say? Well, if I said, to, I mean, you've heard the preach and heard Miles Monroe t- talk about it and heard the guy on TV talk about it, but if I said to you, What is the kingdom of God? What would you say it is? Anybody want to take a stab at it? And what is the kingdom? I mean, this is Jesus' message. This is what you see in the New Testament. This is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and uh, Acts deal specifically with this idea of the kingdom. And here's the challenge about the kingdom. You're gonna see it in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, everywhere you look, 46 times it's used, I think, in the book of Matthew. And then, you get to Acts, and you see it only like 13 times, and then when you get into Paul's letters, the concept almost completely disappears. Or does it disappear? And so, If it's something that Jesus taught, wouldn't it make sense that this is something that Paul probably dealt with? If it's something that Jesus taught, what about the other apostles that taught? Peter, who wrote two letters, and James, and (laughs) Jude. And, I mean, this has got to be in there somewhere, if it's especially what Jesus taught. So, what about the Old Testament? We're not going to go specifically and deal with the Old Testament book by book. But, you're going to see that this idea of the kingdom is something that's coming from the Old Testament. And for you to understand it, you got to know it. So we're going to go back to the Old Testament and we're going to be drawing from parts of the Old Testament. Does that sound good? So anybody got any idea what the kingdom of God is? Write this down if you're taking notes because this is going to be your header and we're going to understand this. This is our definition of the kingdom of God before we start breaking up. The kingdom of God is what God is doing in the earth through Jesus Christ to reconcile the world back to himself. That's what it is. That's not the only definition of the kingdom, but... That is probably the best definition of the kingdom. So I want to define our term tonight. That the kingdom of God is what God is doing in the earth or in the universe through Jesus Christ to reconcile the world back to himself. That's our definition of the kingdom. It's going to, you're going to see in just a minute, it's going to include God's reign. It's going to include God's rule. It's going to include a lot of things, but all of that is going back to God. Reconciling the world back to himself through Jesus and every aspect of that because the kingdom has a lot of components to it. Okay? Are you ready to run tonight? Mm-hmm. Well, we're in the book of Matthew, and so what I want to do is it's going to be important since this is Bible study. Can we be a little bit more specific tonight? We've learned how to study the Bible class that one of the most important aspects of when you're dealing with a book is to understand who wrote the book. And so you can understand why they're saying what they're saying. It's very interesting that the very first gospel that is in our Bible is Matthew. And Matthew is, the go to Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, it says, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. So the person that wrote the gospel of Matthew was a tax collector, which is very interesting when you consider that when Matthew is going to teach his gospel, He talks a lot about money isn't that something when Matthew talks a lot about the kingdom he talks a lot about finance and this is coming from a tax collector and it's unanimously agreed by church fathers that Matthew was the person that wrote this gospel it's not some type of pseudonym and was written in the early sixties and the purpose of this book the reason why Matthew sat down to write his gospel was because he wanted to identify defend and promote Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah who fulfilled the Old Testament so what is the purpose of writing a book if I'm gonna write a cookbook like Brett's sister-in-law wrote what's the purpose she wants people to have clean living she wants people to eat clean right you can I was looking at a book the other day it was a joke book I mean why am I reading a joke book? Pete they want you to make you laugh this is this is a guy who thinks humor is important so he wants you to be funny you know my books why do I write a book living as a spirit because I want people to learn how to live by the Spirit why did Matthew write Matthew? Did you see he want to put a bunch of stories together about Jesus? Or was there any themes in there that Matthew's trying to specifically talk about? And what he's talking about is he's trying to let whoever he's writing to, um, let them know that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, and he is the Davidic Messiah who fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies. Okay? So, um, go with me to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. And we'll start right here. And we're going to see something about the lineage of Jesus that most people overlook. Now, how many of you can say that you open up and you say, I'm going to start reading the New Testament. So you open up to the New Testament, and the very first thing that you get is you get this boring lineage, right? You didn't skip over the first chapter. The only reason you read it is because you know God has it there for a reason, but you're not exactly sure why God has it there. So you just... Read through it. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah, his brother. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Nineveh. And you just get through this and you're like, man, okay, what was the point of all that? I don't know these people. Is it possible that Matthew put this in here for a specific reason? You notice that Luke has a lineage in there, but you'll notice that Mark doesn't have one and John doesn't have one, but Matthew has one. So, let's go here to, uh, to genealogy in verse number one. Verse 1, and it, sa- it says here in verse number 1, verse 1, it's something cluing us in. This is very important. It says this is a record of the ancestors of Jesus. What does your Bible say? Does it say Christ? It says Christ, right? Okay, we're going to deal with that term because Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ in the Greek is the Greek word Christos. I wish I had a dry erase mark, but it's okay. It's the Greek word Christos, and that is simply the word for Messiah in the Greek. If it was not Greek, it wouldn't say Christ. It would say Messiah. In the Hebrew, Mashiach, which is just saying this is Jesus the Messiah. The very first thing that Matthew tells his readers is that the person that you're going to read 28 chapters about, this long letter that I'm writing you, is to let you know that this is Jesus and Jesus is the Messiah. And what is the thing that he says to you next? What's the second most important thing about Jesus? He's going to put it right in there for you. He says he's a descendant of David and Abraham. But why does he tell you this? Why doesn't he say he's the all? He's the King of all ages. He's the power, wonder-working God. He's a miracle-working God. He's the faithful witness, the, the whose blood is dipped in the, the the robe. And why does he say right off the bat he's a descendant of David and Abraham? This has to be important, right? Well, go with me, to Genesis chapter twelve twenty-three. I want to show you this. This has to be important, am I right? I think sometimes when we talk about the uh, Genesis, let me see Gen. Genesis, uh, uh, excuse me, Genesis chapter 2. Ah, that's it. Genesis chapter 2, 12, 2 through 3. Okay, so this is the Abrahamic promise. And God says to Abraham, this is God making Abraham a promise. He says to Abraham, remember, this New Testament is going to pull from all parts of the old testament and if you're a jew living in the ancient days to whom matthew is writing to you're going to understand this he says i will make you into a great nation i will bless you and i will make you famous and you will be a blessing to others i will bless those who bless you and i will curse those who treat you with contempt and all the families of the earth will be blessed through you and so there was, a, uh, there was a promise made to Abraham that it's through his lineage that all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And it was come to under, be understood by the, Israel, uh, the Jewish people that the way the nations of the earth were going to be blessed, the way this was going to come about was going to be through the installment of an anointed Savior of God's people. So... It was understood that in order for the nation of Israel, let's forget about the Gentiles for a second. Let's forget about all the people of God. Let's just talk about the Jews for just a second. It was understood that the gathering of all the Jews and the regathering of all the Jews and the power of God's people was going to come through a Messiah and a Messiah was going to be from Abraham's lineage. So the Messiah, number one, had to come from Abraham's line. But it wasn't only going to come from Abraham's line. It had to come through the Davidic line. Let's go to Matthew chapter 1 verse 6. I want to show you. Matthew 1 and verse 6. So the, the Messiah that Israel was looking for was going to be... Uh, let's see, did my internet give up here? Ah, here we go. Look what it says in Matthew 1 6. Jesus, Jesse, was the father of David. David was the father of Solomon. Go to verse number 17. Verse number 17. I'm sorry if it's hot in here. Okay, look at all those listed above include 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the Babylonian exile, and 14 from the Babylonian exile to the Messiah. And so what David wants you to know that in this account what Matthew wants you to know in this account this one lineage account this one first chapter that Matthew repeats David's name five times five times and Matthew wanted it to be very clear to his readers right from the get-go if you're reading about Jesus let's say you are in the first century like who is this Jesus of Nazareth let's find Matthew he was one of his disciples and he was a tax collector what does his disciple have to say about Jesus it would be very clear to you that Matthew believed that Jesus was from the Davidic line and not only was Jesus from the Davidic line you would understand that Jesus rose from Abraham's lineage and so why would this be important go to second Samuel chapter 7 let me show you are you guys getting this tonight go to second Samuel chapter 7 and let's read this verse number eight look what it says. Now go, this is the Lord's covenant promises David, he says, Now go and say to my servant David, this is what the Lord of heaven's army has declared. I took you from tending sheep in the pasture and selected you to be a leader of my people Israel. And then he says here, I have been with you wherever you've gone. I've destroyed all your enemies before you. Now I will make you, your name famous as anyone who ever lived on the earth. Does this sound familiar to you? Sounds like something God promised Abraham, right? And I will provide a homeland for my people Israel, planting them in a secure place where they will never be disturbed. Evil nations won't oppress them as they've done in the past. Starting from the time I appointed judges to rule my people Israel, and I'll give you rest from all your enemies. Furthermore, declares the Lord, he will make you a house for you, a dynasty of kings. For when you die and are buried with your ancestors, I will raise up. Now listen to this. When you die and are buried with your ancestors, I will raise up one of your descendants, your own offspring, and I will make his kingdom strong. He is the one who will build a house, a temple for my name, and I will secure his royal throne forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. Now this is going to be interesting. He says, I'll be his father and he'll be my son. If he sins, I'll correct and discipline him with a rod like any father would do. But my favor will not be taken from him, because I took it from Saul, whom I removed from your sight. Your house and your kingdom will continue before me for all time, and your throne will be secure forever. This is a Davidic promise, and it was taken and understood by the Jewish people that the king that comes to restore Israel had to be from the Davidic line. And so what Matthew does when he's writing, is what happens is, is that... You have a uh, an exile that happens. You know when we talked about the minor prophets in class and what happened with the Jewish exile. You have this exile that happened, and what ended up going on was that these Israel these Israel people Israel, Israelite people were in exile. Here they are banished, taken captive by Babylon, and their only hope is that. Is it going to be possible one day that someone's going to come deliver us from this exile from out of the hands of the Babylonians? And then when you have Jewish histories, you have the Maccabean revolt, you have Antiochus Epiphanes chapter uh, four that comes in and desecrates the temple. Then you have the Jewish people existing under Roman rule and they're being oppressed in Judea. They have governors uh, and kings over them like Herod and uh, you have... uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Pontius Pilate who's the governor of Judea. So you have these these Jewish people who serve the God of Israel and They're wondering is there going to be a, a king that comes and deliver us from this oppression? And you have these people this whole time and what they're thinking of is the Davidic promise And they're thinking of the a- Abrahamic promise. There's going to be one. He comes. He's going to be son of David He's going to come and he's going to establish the throne forever And this son of David will also be from the, the line of Abraham. And so picture this now. You have a people I'm not exactly sure how many Jews were living in the land at that time. And for years, at least 400 years since Malachi spoke into the writing, to the coming of John the Baptist, was 400 years. You have Malachi wrote, John the Baptist came 400 years. That's a lot of time. That's longer than the United States has been in existence. These picture the whole country has been hoping and hoping and hoping and hoping for 400 years, someone's going to come, someone's going to come. And what's going to qualify this person is, number one, he's going to be a son of Abraham. And number two, he's going to be the son of David. And if you're not from Abraham's line, it doesn't matter what miracles you're doing. If you're not from the house of David, it doesn't matter how many blind eyes you're opening. You are not the Messiah. And I'm sorry to tell that to you. And so it was the hope of the people. And Matthew is writing and confirming the fact that the king that has come is Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah and he is the anointed. He's from the house of Abraham and he's from the house of David. Are you here? Now go with me to chapter 1 verse 8 and 2 verse 12. Matthew chapter one and verse eight, and two verse twelve. I don't want to read the whole thing. Uh, Let's well, let's go to Matthew chapter two. Here you have the visit of the Magi, and the very first thing that you're going to discover is that well, in chapter one twenty-three, Jesus is called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Someone say God with us. Okay. And so Matthew is pointing this picture that what is Jesus? He's son of who? Abraham. And he's son of David. So who is he son of? Abraham. Say Abraham. Abraham. And son of David. Okay, so you have number 1, he's son of Abraham. Number 2, you have he's son of David. He's the hope that we're looking for. But the next thing that you're going to see is that Jesus's birth demonstrates that Jesus was God's promise given through the Old Testament prophets. The prophets believed that Jesus was going to come and he was going to be God among us. So the very first thing that you see is Emmanuel uh, in verse chapter 1 verse 23 means God with us and so Jesus not only appeared as the son of Abraham or the son of David Matthew was writing to let you know he was more than just a human being. This was God who was with you and they wanted, Matthew wanted his readers to know that in the next 26 chapters that you're about to read, you're not only seeing son of David, son of Abraham, you're also seeing God. So here comes this concept now that the king of the kingdom is going to be a 100% man, 100% of fulfillment of prophecy, but he's also going to be just as much God as Yahweh is God. And so you have, uh, you know, uh it says here in uh, Matthew chapter 26, you'll, you'll start to see something that starts to cut through everything is that when you get through this book, you're going to see that the Davidic Messianic Deliverer is number one. He's washing people's feet. The Messianic Deliverer is eating with sinners and you're going to see that he's suffering and dying. And this is stuff that we're not going to get into in just a second, but this is stuff that's going to now become perplexing to people. How is it that the Messiah is going to suffer and die and how is it that the Messiah whose God is going to wash his disciples feet? Hello? Okay. So, um, let's go to uh, Matthew chapter 1, verse 22 through 23. And let's see something here. Okay. There's a saying that, we're not going to look at uh, all the verses, but there's a saying that Matthew uses in his gospel that appears a lot. It actually appears over ten times. That's a lot just for us. That's 2.8, that's 2.8 times for every chapter. It is In verse number 22, it says, All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Someone say, all of this occurred. Of this occurred. You see it again in chapter 21 and verse number 45. Matthew keeps saying this over and over again, all this occurred, all this occurred, all this occurred. So what Matthew's trying to tell you about Jesus is that Jesus is a fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. And so as a fulfillment of the Old Testament promises, what you're going to see is that a lot of the things that Jesus is doing in the Old Testament aren't just happenstance and coincidence. Or in the New Testament, it's not just happenstance and coincidence. For example, let's go to chapter 4 verse verse 1 you see Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, right? Jesus' temptation in the wilderness was not something that just happened. How many you have ever wondered to yourself and thought, wow, this is interesting that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, drove Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. It was God's design by the Holy Spirit. And we're going to talk about Christ's anointing by the Holy Spirit. But it says that Jesus was driven in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. How many you have ever tried to rationalize this in your mind? Like, well, he was just leading Jesus around that temptation. Or, well, you know, the Holy Spirit, he doesn't lead anyone into sin. He doesn't lead anyone into temptation. Why would he lead Jesus into temptation? Why would the Holy Spirit lead him into temptation? What it's not saying is that the Holy Spirit, Jesus was going to be tempted anyway by the devil, so the Holy Spirit was trying to lead him around this temptation. It doesn't say that. That's someone trying to interpret it. What it says is it was the Holy Spirit's mind and design. It's almost like Jesus had to go through this. And Jesus did have to go through it because this was Jesus qualifying himself to be the second Adam and to be the new Israel. As a true king, Jesus came to embody and represent what Israel should have been. Go with me to Hosea chapter 11 verse 1. Let me show you what I'm talking about. What Matthew is doing in this gospel is he is subtly putting Jesus in the place that Israel originally had. It says, when Israel was a child, I loved him and out of Egypt I called my son. So, God calls Israel his son. Now, I'm not talking about Jesus right now. I'm talking about the Israeli people. God called them their son. But how many know that Israel was a disobedient son? Nation Israel rebelled for 40 years they spent wandering in the desert. And uh, what Matthew is saying why did Jesus in the desert for 40 days? Because what Jesus was doing is he was representing himself as the Messiah of God and as being. God's one obedient son. Alright? And so, then Jesus comes along and he says, Not only am I God's true obedient son, unlike Israel who was is disobedient, he's going to start coming along and making shocking statements that are come from the Hebrew Scriptures. Go with me to uh, chapter 12 and verse 42. Or actually just go to chapter 12 and verse 1. Matthew? Yep. Matthew 12 and verse 1. So here comes Jesus on the scenes, and he's from the house of Abraham, he's from the house of David, he's Emmanuel, he's God with us, and uh, then he comes along and he's the obedient Israel. Is this making sense to you guys? trying to trace you back to the Old Testament, who Jesus really is. Then he makes shocking statements, and he says here in chapter 12 verse 1, at about that time Jesus was walking through some grain, Matthew chapter 12. Uh, and verse, whoa, am I, did I get the right one? Go to Matthew twelve forty two. Excuse me. Did I get it right? Matthew twelve forty one. Okay, Matthew twelve forty one. Excuse me. It Says here, the people of Nineveh will stand up against this generation on judgment and condemn it. For they repented at the sins, at the preaching of Jonah. Now someone greater than Jonah is here, but you, refuse to, re- but you f- refuse to repent. What Jesus is saying here is that he's claiming that he was greater than the prophet who caused the mightiest revival in the history of Israel. And then Jesus comes along and he says in chapter 12, verse 42, that a greater than Solomon is here. And Jesus calls himself greater than the literal biological son of David. And so you read this and you say, well, he's just saying he's greater than Solomon because he was full of wisdom. He's greater than Jonah because he was, you know, a a prophet. But what Jesus is saying is that there's nobody greater than me. If you were in Israel at that time, you would have understood this as who does this guy think he is. But here's the thing. If Jesus is the king of the kingdom. If Jesus is who he says he is, then it's true. He is greater than Jonah, and it's true he is greater than Solomon. And then Matthew does something when he's writing this gospel, and he introduces the kingdom through the call of John the Baptist. Now, this is going to get into something interesting because why is it that Jesus got baptized? Go with me to chapter 3 and verse 13. I guess follow me tonight. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you have this guy, John the Baptist, that comes along on the scene. And he's going to fulfill a prophecy in Isaiah chapter 40 in verse 3 that says, A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our King. And so what you discover is that John is a voice that's calling the Jewish people to repent, to prepare the way for God himself to come in the form of the Messiah. This is a fulfillment of prophecy. And... What John is coming and saying is that, first of all, this is John is representative of Isaiah chapter 40, which said that before the Messiah would come, there was going to be a forerunner. But what I, what, what, the message of John the Baptist had was, is that people need to repent. Why is it? What do you mean by repent? It, there's no gospel yet. What is he talking about? People need to repent. The first thing that John was preaching was the kingdom of God. But here's the thing, people sometimes, man, they got this thing hot in here. Did he tell them to turn it down? Okay. Um boy, I'm telling you what I'm roasting up here. Um, <clears throat> John comes preaching the kingdom. How many think it's odd that John is preaching Jesus' message? Right? What is the kingdom of God? Because a lot of times people think that Jesus was the originator of this message. but this wasn't Jesus' original message. This was a message that goes all the way back as far as Genesis chapter three in verse 15, that God is going to restore. The earth, so that His glory fills the earth as the waters covers the sea. And what we'll see when we get to the book of Revelation is that God's temple was not intended just to be the temple of Solomon in Israel god's temple was intended to be the whole universe actually the whole earth and when we get to his, if we were to study the book of ezekiel what i would argue for is the fact that when ezekiel talks about the rebuilding of the temple in ezekiel chapter 37 he wasn't intending that there would be a literal rebuilding of a temple what is what ezekiel meant was is that the whole earth was going to be god's temple and that his presence was going to fill the whole entire earth and so what jesus i mean that's arguable but what jesus is saying or what john what what, what uh what matthew is saying through Isaiah is that Isaiah is going to have a forerunner that comes, and he's going to tell everyone that the kingdom of God is here. And in preaching the kingdom, he started heralding that the heralding that the king of the kingdom is here, and that was Jesus. And when uh, before Jesus came on the scene, John the Baptist was telling people to repent. So you got to ask yourself, in light of the kingdom of God, what does it mean to repent? Write these down. Number one, repent means turn away from sin and recommit to faithfulness, and renewed loyalty to the kingship of God. But what he's telling his people is turn away from your disobedience as being disobedient Israel to your false gods and recommit yourself to the lordship and the kingship of a God. Number two, it means to change your thinking and understand that your security does not come in your Jewish identity but in a relationship with God. So what John the Baptist is doing while he's preaching the kingdom is he's trying to get people to recommit themselves to the kingship of God. God as all in all, the sovereign God who rules over everything. And then Jesus shows up on the scene. And we know the story, we'll get into in Luke, where he says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And so Jesus gets baptized by John the River. And I always would wonder and ask myself, why is it that Jesus was getting baptized and Jesus of course says I, I need to do this to fulfill all righteousness and so we're not going to talk about exactly what he meant by to fulfill all righteousness but there was this was a fulfillment of the Jewish expectation that when the Messiah would come there would be a renewed emphasis on holiness and obedience and Jesus was doing this to let those that follow him because he was a rabbi at the time knowing that he endorsed John's message that yes I'm going to start preaching the same message. And I want you to know I endorse everything that John is saying. And there needs to be a recommitment and a rededication in the hearts of the people that Israel belongs to the kingship of Almighty God. And so what Jesus was doing was just getting John and endorsing his message because Jesus was going to start preaching John's message because John was soon to get locked up in prison by Herod. Are you with me so far? So you have son of Abraham... You have Son of David in the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies that God was going to regather His people Israel. And so there is a Jewish expectation during the time of John the Baptist that there is a Messiah that's going to come. Do you know what I mean by Jewish expectation? The Jewish people for 400 years have been expecting that their Savior and that their Deliverer was going to come. And their expectation was that He was going to be a political ruler that reestablishes the great Kingdom of Israel and rebuilds the whole House of David. This was their expectation. This is what they were looking for. And all of a sudden, you have hope that, you know, that there's going to be a Messiah. And before the time of Jesus, there was false messiahs that had risen up all over the place, claiming that this was their person, never, the house of, never, never fulfilling everything that was said in prophecy about him. And so they were looking for the Messiah. And there starts to see, in just a second, we're going to see, there starts to be this expectation around Jesus. When he starts healing blind eyes, he starts doing miracles, he starts teaching, people are starting to think to themselves, this could be him. Is it possible this is him? And so maybe it is or maybe it isn't. So we're going to see that remember what we taught in how to study the Bible class. You guys you guys with me so far. I don't want to lose you. In how to study the Bible class, we talked about there are things Jesus did and said in his ministry and then there are things that the writers did and said about Jesus. Right? The way that things went down and the way that the writer told you about things that went down. And one of the things that Matthew uses in his gospel And it's a term that appears over 30 times as he uses the term, the Son of Man. Let's go to uh, 12 verse 8. I want to show it to you. Now, we could do this 30 times, but I just want to show it to you once. Jesus says in Matthew 12 verse 8, For the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. What's interesting is that in Matthew's gospel, Jesus preferred this statement over any statement that may uh, perhaps in our minds shed more light on his messianic status and mission. Jesus picked this statement! Why did Jesus talk about the Son of Man? You know when I deal with people that want to say that, especially Jehovah's Witnesses, they want to say, well, you know, Jesus is not God because he never claimed to be God. If they say that, you need to know this term because you might run into a Jehovah's Witness. You need to challenge them on what did Jesus mean when he said that he was the Son of Man. Because if you're taking notes, this is a very important statement to write this down. There is nothing Jesus ever said, and there is nothing that Jesus ever did. Nothing he said or nothing he did. Nothing. Zero in the Gospels. Nothing that he said or did that did not pertain to his message of the kingdom. Jesus was very intense. Jesus was very adamant. And the kingdom of God was the burden of Jesus. His whole burden came because of the kingdom. His whole ministry revolved around the kingdom and everything that he did, he didn't mince words. He was talking about the kingdom. And every time he referred to himself as the son of man, he was referring to his position in the kingdom of God. So the question then becomes, what did Jesus mean when he called himself the son of man? How many have ever wondered this before? What is he talking about? You know, you've seen this statement before. Anyone ever wondered what did he mean by this? You know, you probably think, well, he's just trying to let you know he's not just God. He's also man, 100% man, 100% God. That would be actually correct. This is a statement that lets you know that Jesus acted in his earthly life. So when you see Jesus having power over sickness and weather and death, these are earthly manifestations of his authority that he had as a man. So you see him ruling as a second Adam. Because... God's design in Psalm chapter 8, you would see this, is that God intended for mankind to rule over the earth. Man was supposed to rule over the earth. I was visiting a gentleman today. He's getting ready to go home to be with the Lord. As a matter of fact, he's getting ready to take his last breath. He was on life support, he was on hospice care, and the, the wife that I was with told me this could be any minute. And I wasn't the only minister that was there with him, and one of the other ministers was praying, and I liked what he said. As he was praying, he says, it was never meant to be like this in the beginning. That's a very powerful statement when you look at a man that's dying, unconscious. His body is rotting, pretty much stinks. And you know in just a few hours he's going to be turned into dust. They're going to cremate him. And you can only help but think at that point, no matter how successful you are, no matter how much money, this is going to be you one day. Just like you imagine your wedding day. Just like you imagine... I can feel the air, it's getting better. It's like relief from the fires and the quenching torment of hell. Just like, you know, you picture your wedding day. I can't wait to walk down the aisle and kiss my bride. You picture the day you get the big promotion. Picture the day you go on your cruise. Guess what? I pictured this is going to be me one day dying. Family hopefully could be gathered around like the way his family was. This is the way to die if you're going to die. And that day's coming for me just like my wedding day is coming. Just like my whatever. And the thing is, it was never meant to be like this in the beginning. God meant for His people to rule in His reign. So this takes us back to what I said about the kingdom is that this is God working things and restoring things back the way that He originally intended them and He's doing it through His Son Jesus Christ and building a kingdom. And He's done it, number one, by coming as a man. I just get all that. Amen? Amen. Someone say amen. amen. But it also means this is what we're going to get into in just a second. He's also referring to something that Nobody understood until after his resurrection and that is his suffering aspect as the king. Nobody had the mindset that we have about Jesus back then. We have Paul's letters, we have 2,000 years of church history. They didn't have that. Their way they thought was completely different. We hear the cross of Jesus like Billy Graham preaches the cross, you gotta come by the cross. You know, we hear Jimmy Swaggart talking about the cross. Nobody was talking about the cross back then. Nobody. When they thought of Jesus or or Messiah, they thought of go and get your power from Caesar and deliver us people. And Jesus, when saying the Son of Man, was bringing in something that the disciples later identified with in their death. And that was this Messiah was going to have to suffer and die. Hello, somebody. And that's why Jesus calls himself in Matthew chapter 21, verse 24, the rejected stone. And he's portrayed in Matthew chapter 16, verse 21 as the suffering servant. It says, from then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of the, relig- the religious law. He would be killed, but on the third day he would be risen from the dead. Now, you think that makes sense to us now as believers? We say, oh, yeah, Jesus, yeah, that's, makes about, that sounds about right. But that's not the plan. That is not the plan in the Old Testament. The plan in the Old Testament was he was going to come and restore his kingdom. And he has met every single qualification thus far. Why are you going to go to Jerusalem and suffer and die? And this is what Jesus revealed about the Son of Man. And then there's another meaning, and that is Daniel chapter 7.13, which we've talked about in our class. And uh, let's go here real quick. I hope you guys are liking this, man. This is... Daniel chapter chapter 10, verse 7, verse 13. As my vision continued that night, I saw someone like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient one and was led into his presence. He was given authority, honor, sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that the people of every race and nation and language will obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. Does this sound like someone suffering to you? Sounds like the glorified Christ. Does it sound like Jesus, though? That's absolutely Jesus. That's the Son of God. So now we have a problem. We see the idea of a Messiah who is, number one, going to come with the Son. What is going to come is the glorified, resurrect, the glorified, resurrected, conquering, second advent Jesus. But on the other side, we see him talking about suffering. So what does this do for... Are you guys following me tonight? So what does this idea do about the kingdom? Because if you were a first century Jew, the only thing you would understand was that... The Messiah who's going to build his kingdom has no suffering. This is going to be him right here. This is what all their expectation was in. And so uh, it's going to get interesting in just a second because Jesus came and he's going to introduce an idea that we have yet to see. And then it says, the Son of Man, I like this one the best. Another aspect about it is the Son of Man was probably the better statement to use because when you're talking to Jews and you use the term Son of Man, they immediately think Daniel 7.13. If you called yourself the Son of God, you would have then been associating yourself with the person who was proclaimed God at that time in the Roman Empire, and that was Caesar. And what you would be saying is that you are Caesar's son, and that is not a statement of deity. So if Jesus called himself the Son of God, people would say, what is he saying about himself? He's son of Caesar? And guess what? You're no longer deified, because you're the son of a deity, but you're not deity yourself. But when you say that you're son of man, you're saying that you are the God of Israel. And so, saying that you're the son of man was actually more of a statement of deity. How are you guys following me so far? Okay, but then something happens. Go with me to Matthew chapter uh, three, verse two. How are you guys are getting this tonight? Matthew chapter three, and verse two. Now, let me ask you this question: You hear people say. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all His righteousness, right? And all these things shall be added unto you. What does that even mean to say, seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness? I mean, what does that even look like? You know, seek ye first the kingdom of God. Does it just mean we're supposed to just put scriptures on a refrigerator? Does that mean that we're just supposed to, well, you know, uh, whatever? Go to the family Christian bookstore and and only listen to Christian music and turn our pan. Is that that's seeking first the kingdom. What does it mean? But you know why people don't know how to define that is because they really don't know what the kingdom is because the kingdom of God has become this vague concept. You know, well I'm doing it for the kingdom. Well, what? You know, I'm, I don't worry about. It. I'm, I'm giving to the kingdom. You know, I, I'm going to church because I'm serving the kingdom. What are you really saying about serving the kingdom? What What does that mean? And so. We're going to see that in just a second. But what happens in Matthew is that you're going to see that there's two words used for the kingdom. There's kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven. A lot of times people can't really come to reconcile. Is kingdom of God the same thing as the kingdom of heaven? Matthew chapter 3 verse 2 says that John the Baptist said, Repent of your sins and turn to God for the kingdom of heaven is near. And the Greek word is, Hey basilea ton arnon and the kingdom of God is hei basilea to so it's definitely not the same in the Greek they're very different but the question is are they the same um, what did I tell you the kingdom of God was it is what God is doing through Jesus Christ to reassert his rule over creation right okay so if you're taking notes on what the kingdom is write this down the kingdom of God is that the kingdom of God is God's kingship rule and authority The kingdom of God is God's reign in our lives. It is a present spiritual reality. It's an inheritance which God will bestow upon his people when Christ comes in his glory. It's a realm in which the followers of Christ have entered now. So, we're going to get into this in just a second. The kingdom of God is now, but it's yet to come. It's both and. And it's a future realm which will enter when Christ returns. So if someone asks you and says, is the kingdom of God now? The answer is yes, it is now. But then, there's also another aspect of the kingdom of God, and that is the kingdom of God is yet to come. And I can prove it to you. How many have entered into eternal life? You have entered into eternal life. That eternal life began working into you the minute you got born again. The minute you gave your heart to Jesus, you received the life of God. We'll see that in John's Gospel. John's very adamant about Life begins the moment that you know Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The moment the Holy Spirit opens up your heart to know the truth. The minute that you saw that Jesus was the Christ. The minute that regeneration began in you, eternal life began. couldn't be stripped from you. That means that you were reconciled to God. That means that you made peace with God. That means you put your faith and your trust in Christ. You converted through repentance. You became His Son and God in an instant adopted you into His family. All these things took place in an instant. But, how many are going to die one day? Unless Jesus comes back, you are going to die to write a book called you will die one day that would be really nice people say wow how can you be so blunt is it the truth well i believe god will protect you and bless you You don't have to die sick i don't don't necessarily believe any of that but you're going to die one way or the other hopefully you believe you god you live out your length of days so your body's going back to the ground from which it came so there is an aspect of the kingdom is it's not yet because death is still working the earth So like I showed you before on the blackboard, you have two realities working against each other. You have the now versus the eternal. The now and the eternal are parallel with each other. And God's kingdom has interrupted the earth. It has come to exist and coincide along what we have right now. And all that is working up to a point until Jesus comes back and reestablishes his reign upon the earth and destroys death, hell, and the grave. Are you guys here with me tonight? Am I talking too fast? Are you getting this? Okay. So... It's also a future realm that will enter when Christ returns. But what about the kingdom of heaven? And this is an important term that we should come to understand because the kingdom of heaven term is used 32 times in the book of Matthew. 32 times. Uh, So you can't avoid this. So write this down. The term kingdom of heaven was used to focus on the truth that God's kingdom is from above. It's not an earthly one, but rather represents his sovereignty and rule over other kingdoms and other so-called gods. So you're asking me, is the, term, is the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God the same? It is not the same term, no. It's describing two different things. It's essentially describing the same thing, but it's describing different aspects of one thing. When you talk about the kingdom of God, you're talking about God's kingdom universally overall. It is here on the earth. It's the gospel on the earth. It's what God's doing in the earth to reconcile things unto himself, right? But when you say kingdom of heaven, what you're referring to is you're more specifically referring to an aspect about the kingdom, and that is it's from above, and it has come down to the earth, and it's interrupted the earthly affairs of mankind. Does that make sense to you? So, uh let's see this here go with me to Matthew chapter 4 and verse 23 this is where it's going to get good now Matthew chapter 4 verse 23 this is what it says And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Then it says in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. Now, what you see in Matthew's gospel is that everywhere Jesus went, healed, healed, He delivered and he preached the gospel of the kingdom, correct? Do you ever wonder why he did this? Go to Isaiah chapter 53 and we'll see. Remember, Jesus is coming to fulfill Messianic expectations. If you were a Jew back then you would have some expectations of what the guy is supposed to look like, who's going to deliver his people. It says here, "Who has believed our report, to whom has the arm of the Lord? Who has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? These are important statements. My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground, nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. We turned our backs on him. he did look the other way. He was despised, and we did not care. But look what it says here. Yet it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins, beaten so that we could be whole, whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We left God's path to follow our own, yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. And let's see what it says right here. He was oppressed and treated harshly, never said a word, led to, like a lamb to the slaughter. Uh, Let's go down to verse number 9. He had done no wrong, never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's cave. And then it says, uh, verse number 11, When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for I will bear his sins. So what you're seeing right here is that the Messiah... This is not just talking about Jesus' death, this is also, in some part, referring to aspects of Jesus' ministry. That the Messiah was going to come, and that he was going to take the burden of his people, and that he was going to suffer in his place. And when Jesus is seen healing, this is partial fulfillment to that. And then, you're going to see that not only did Jesus heal, Jesus had power over the elements. And that's when Jesus told the storm to calm down, that's Matthew chapter 8, 24 to 27. Not only that, you're going to see in Matthew chapter 8, 28 34 that Jesus exercises his kingly power uh, to expel evil spirits. And then he forgives sins, Matthew 9, 1 through 8. Then he raises the dead, Matthew 9, 8 through 26. And so you see healing, power over the elements, exorcism of demons, forgiveness of sins, and raising of the dead in just two chapters in Matthew. Matthew chapter 8, 4 14 all the way through Matthew chapter 9 26 you see the Messiah healing having power of the elements telling devils to flee forgiving sins raising the dead and you think to yourself this is something that only a king could do hello somebody so not only that but Jesus tells his disciples to do the exact same thing so what's Matthew telling us in this he's telling you that Jesus, the Messiah and the King is fulfilling the Jewish expectations that he has we're going to see in in, in, in just a little bit that the Jewish expectations that they had of the Messiah was that he would do these things are you guys here with me tonight? but then something happened inside of Jesus' ministry and that is he began to reveal that he had to suffer and die and this is the passion of Christ. Now, write this down if you're taking notes. Christ bore all the markings of the Messiah who could liberate Israel from Rome. And this is why the disciples could not understand how Jesus could intentionally go to Jerusalem, that city. That killed prophets, knowing he would be falsely charged, arrested, tortured, and killed. Go with me to, uh, to chapter 20 of Matthew, Matthew 20, verse 18. So, son of Abraham, son of David, Emmanuel, God with us, John the Baptist prophesied that his kingdom would come in power. Jesus endorsed that message. Jesus fulfilled the messianic expectations that were proclaimed about him by Isaiah, and we'll see later on by other prophets. And then you'll notice that Jesus cast out devils power over elements, power over demoniacs, did everything that was said of him. And so the disciples thought to themselves he was crazy when he says in Matthew twenty eighteen and 19, listen, we're going to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will be betrayed to the leading priests and to the teachers of religious law. They'll sentence him. Then they'll hand him over to the Romans to be mocked, flogged with a whip, crucified. But on the third day, he'll rise again. And this was unthinkable, the jews but this was actually the intent of jesus and we're going to find out why it was in just a second but jesus does something that's extremely interesting and that is we all know that he went riding into jerusalem on a donkey and we have we call this palm sunday this is the triumphal triumph i can never say this word triumphal entry we know the story right we don't have to read it but you ever find it interesting that jesus went riding on a donkey i mean Do you ever stop to think to yourself. That's probably some type of symbolism. And go with me to 1 Kings chapter. uh, Well go to me in Zechariah chapter 9. 9 through 10. Let me show you why he did this. Because anytime you see something odd. In scripture. You should probably assume. That there's a reason this is being done. And I think it's peculiar enough. That Jesus went into Jerusalem. Riding on a donkey. Now let's read this. Rejoice. O people of Zion, shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious. Notice what he says. He's righteous and what? He's victorious. So he's, was Jesus victorious? He was. But look what he is. He's humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. I will remove the battle chariots from Israel and the war horses from Jerusalem. I'll destroy all the weapons used in battle, and your king will bring peace to the nations. He will, his realm will stretch from sea to sea and from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. How would you, as a first century Jew that understood the prophet Zechariah, and probably understood these writings, you see the person that all the world, like the, the high priest said about Jesus, is going out to see him, and here he comes into Jerusalem right before the time of the Passover, and he's riding on this donkey. Would you think that was probably a fulfillment of prophecy? Absolutely a fulfillment of prophecy. And do uh, you remember I said that Jesus said that he okay, go with me to first Kings chapter one, let me show you. You'll find in this chapter, we're going to have to read it all, that Solomon, whose name comes from Shalom, was David's peace child. When David was dying, uh, he was trying to decide who was going to be the (coughs) successor of his throne. And he decided that Solomon was going to be the successor of his throne. And when Solomon became the successor of his throne, what animal do you think Solomon rode into Jerusalem when he was anointed king? A donkey. A donkey. So Solomon is David's peace child and he's going to be anointed king and he's going to take up the Davidic throne and reestablish and, and, and hold and be the next in line of the Davidic kingdom. First Kings chapter 1 you'll find out that Solomon came with a donkey. And so what is this saying about Jesus? He's not only fulfilling and acting as a type of Solomon, but not only Solomon, the greater Solomon, because he's getting ready to establish a greater kingdom, but how is he establishing this greater kingdom? You would think the people that are laying down their branches will probably think to themselves, he's getting ready to overthrow the powers in Jerusalem and establish his throne here and then take on Rome. He's got he's he, he he's on he's on the donkey. This is it. This is really going to be. This is it. They're taking the branches and they're bowing down. They're worshiping Jesus and they're saying, yeah, here he is. This is the Messiah of God. This is the one who's coming. This is him. He's on the throne. He's, good. he's, he's peaceful and he's getting ready to destroy the weapons used in battle. He's going to bring peace to the nations. This is him. Then you know what he does? He goes into the temple. Matthew chapter 21. And he cleans it out. Makes whips. And starts whipping the people. Do you know what this is symbolic that Jesus was doing? He was restoring and saying that he's going to bring reform to the temple. He's reestablishing a religion now. Jesus didn't just, couldn't just be satisfied in their minds with the Galilean ministry. He's got to go into Jerusalem. And now he's going to clean house on the temple. This wasn't just a synagogue. This was the temple he did this in. And you know what people would have seen him doing? He would have become... Remember we talked about on Friday night, we talked about um, Josiah when Josiah found out that it was time to bring the kingdom of God uh, or it was time to reestablish the law of Moses in Israel. So what did he do? He went around and he smashed all the shrines of all the idols of Molech and all these other idols, right? Well, guess what? This was been in a, in a, in a first century Jew's mind. They're thinking, oh my God, he's like old oh, Uzziah and Hezekiah and Josiah. He's one of the Israel's good kings. He's reestablishing order in Israel. What would you think if you saw Jesus doing this? You probably would have had some serious high expectations. And this now in Matthew's gospel, you have, I wish I had a mark, you have a Galilean ministry. Healing the sick, raising the dead, casting out devils, fulfilling prophecy. He's merciful to the people. He's we're going to see that you'll see that Jesus ministered all the marginalized people. People that people looked over, the rich and the poor, the women. Jesus was treating them like a good king. And then Jesus says, I'm going into Jerusalem. They knew he was going to die. But he goes in and people are like, "Well, maybe he's not going to die. Maybe so what you have is a very high high expectation for Jesus right now." You guys follow me tonight. The way that Matthew escalates this story is 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 quite unbelievable, but then something happens in twenty six chapter twenty six verse seventeen, and that is Jesus starts talking funny, and he starts. Oh, I want I want, to read, want want to read it because for the sake of time we have. He starts saying that he's the Passover Lamb, and the blood shed for the sake of his people. And what Jesus, the King of Israel, starts telling his disciples is that he would die for his people on the cross to make available for them a newly restored relationship with Jesus, or with God. Then something happens in chapter 26, and that is Jesus is arrested. Let's go to chapter 26, verse 52, and this is going to shed light on stuff that Jesus knew about himself, Twenty-six. Because what we have to understand about the way Matthew is writing is we assume so much because we're so far ahead. But we got to look at it really as how they were looking at it. Chapter 26, verse 52, Jesus says, Put your sword away. This is after Peter slashed off Malchus's ear. Those who use the sword will die by the sword. Verse number 53, Don't you realize that I could ask my Father for thousands of angels to protect us and he would send them now? But if I did that, how would the scriptures be fulfilled that describe what must happen? So what Jesus is saying right here is that, uh, look what it says in verse number 55. Then Jesus said to the crowd, am I some dangerous revolutionary that you come with swords and clubs to arrest me? Why didn't you arrest me in the temple? I was there teaching every day. But this is happening to fulfill the words of the prophets as recorded in scripture. At that point, all the disciples asserted and fled. Jesus was simply saying, my kingdom is not a political kingdom. Everyone was expecting his kingdom to be political. As a matter of fact, they arrested Jesus because they thought his kingdom was going to be political. There was nobody, even his closest disciples, that thought that his kingdom was heavenly. And you know what happens? Jesus goes on trial and Jesus was crucified. And when you see Jesus crucified, you'll see that he was treated as a false king and exposed as a dangerous fraud. And they even put a sign over Jesus' name that says Jesus uh, of Nazareth, king of the Jews. And of course you know about Jesus' resurrection. And when Jesus was raised from the dead, God was uh, the true Messiah fulfilling scripture uh, and vindicating Jesus. Now, I don't want to get too much into that, but there's something that we understand, and that is that this is what happened as pertaining to the kingdom. But the question has now become, this is the events that went down, that described the Kingdom of God in the book of Matthew. But it becomes more now, not only what happened, but what did Jesus say about His Kingdom? I guys follow me so far. We have what Matthew said. We have what Matthew described as the events of Jesus. All of this stuff, if you're reading as a first century Jew, you would understand Yeah, He has to be the Messiah. But what about this thing of Him dying? This is not supposed to happen. So who better to explain his death. Because if Jesus is going to be the Messiah, there has to be an explanation for His death. Because He wasn't supposed to die. The Messiah, the King of the Kingdom, the restored Israel, wasn't supposed to happen that way. And we'll see that Jesus explains it in His teachings. So if you got your Bible, go to uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse number 3. The very first thing that Jesus enters into His Kingdom teachings is his Sermon on the Mount. Are you guys starting to see a little bit how all this has to do with something bigger than just a nice cute story about Jesus? It really is a fulfillment of prophecy. And Jesus is doing these things on purpose to prove out he is who God has sent to restore order to the kingdom of God. This isn't just, well, Jesus was sad that people were sick and didn't like to see people hurt. And he just was trying to heal people because he was sad that they're sick and he had healing power. So he did it. It was for a greater purpose. Well, you know, Jesus just calmed the storm because he was bad like that. He calmed the storm. Uh, he was doing it for a greater purpose. Well, you know, Jesus uh, just went in the temple because he didn't like seeing people. No, no, no. He was trying to reinstate that there was going to have to be reform in the temple. Well, you know, Jesus just was at the Passover because he wanted to make some type of ordinance for his church. No, no, no. He was doing it to fulfill prophecy pertain to the kingdom. All this is done on purpose. Are you guys with me tonight? Okay. The Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are weak. Blessed are those who desire righteousness. Blessed are the mercy, and you know we got all, blessed are those who are persecuted, and despised as Jesus' disciples. What Jesus is teaching is how to live in His kingdom. And I don't want to get into uh, a long thing on the beatitude. You could preach weeks on them, but this is basically how a person who's involved in kingdom life should live. And then Jesus talks about greater righteousness. And in chapter 5, 21 to 48, if you're taking notes, I want to get to something real quick before we end. He talks about that one must live a transformed life to enter into the kingdom and not just the rigid, cold-hearted interpretations of the law. And you'll see there's commands against, so for instance, there's a command against murder in the law. We talked about this. Jesus doesn't just say you can't murder. Jesus says if you think about it in your heart, you've already committed the sin then there was the same thing with adultery and lust wasn't so much of a sin in the law now was it you couldn't sleep with a man's wife but it never said in the law that you couldn't think about sleeping with a man's wife did it so how many of those, how many people do you think in first, I mean right now if you think about sleeping with another man's wife you've committed a serious sin, sins in your heart but back then they were like well you know I won't sleep with her but I'm sure you're going to think about sleeping with her Jesus says, if you look at the woman in your heart, you've already committed adultery. What is Jesus saying? Lust is forbidden in the kingdom of God. Because lust is a heart sin. So you're going to see that Jesus was teaching in the kingdom of God, your heart has to be right. And I just did a whole series on that. Then he teaches in chapter 6, fellowship with God from the heart. And we won't get into that. And then he teaches that your uh, righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees to be a part of his kingdom. And when Jesus says, entering at the strait gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, many there be that go into it, but straight to the gate, and there is a way that leads into life, and few there be that find it. Jesus was actually talking about a righteousness that exceeds the scribes of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. That righteousness means doing things the way God wants you to do them through your heart. And not doing it rigidly the way the Pharisees did it. There is a wide road. This isn't necessarily talking about going to heaven and going to hell. There is a wide road that leads to destruction. And that is going to church and doing things just because you want to be seen to do them. Everybody can do that. The narrow gate is doing it from the right heart. For the right reason. And he says, very few people actually fellowship with me from their heart. I watch a lot of people do a lot of things for me, but they're not really doing them for me. They're doing it so they can feel good. they give giving to orphanages so they can feel good about themselves. They're doing all these religious acts, but they have no relationship with me from the heart. And that's the narrow gate that Jesus is talking about. Now, um... Then Jesus does something, and in my opinion, if you're asking me what the most important things in the book of Matthew are, it is his parables about the kingdom of God. Because we don't just see Jesus fulfilling prophecy, we see Jesus teaching about the kingdom. It's not Isaiah teaching about the kingdom. It's not Ezekiel teaching about the kingdom. It's not Jeremiah teaching about the kingdom. It's not Paul explaining things about the kingdom. It's not Matthew. It is Jesus, the king of the kingdom, the Messiah of God, teaching you, Exactly about it. Now, there's something that happened in Scripture, Matthew chapter 17. Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration and there's a voice that comes from heaven in the midst of Elijah and Moses. Elijah representing the greatest of the prophets. Moses representing the greatest of, uh, the interp- the highest interpreter of the law. And you have Jesus' closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, all of which that uh, John was killed at the hands of Herod. James was killed by Herod Agrippa. Acts 5, but you have Peter and James, Peter and John, who wrote major parts of the New Testament. We're going to see in First Peter. What's interesting is that this uh, testimony that Jesus saw was seen by Peter, who was transfigured by God in front of Peter, played a major part in Peter's writing his first and second, uh, first and second epistle. When the people uh, that Peter was writing to in different regions were going into false doctrine, Peter wrote a testimony to them and let them know that they 're following uh, heresies and false doctrines about Christ that went counter to what he experienced when he saw Jesus transfigured they were doubting the second coming of Christ in peter 's time saying that there was no second coming and in peter 's time, because they were doubting the second coming of Christ, they were living very elusive lives, lives of promiscuity and lives of sexual loosed because if he was coming if he 's not coming there 's going to be no judgment and Peter single-handedly rebuked that by saying he saw Jesus transfigured on the mount and he was coming and they would see him the way that Peter saw him in that transfiguration so you see how in the long term what the benefit was of it right Uh, but this is what Jesus said about it and he began teaching and let me show you what he taught go with me to Matthew chapter 13 verse 11 you guys are getting a lot. Someone told me the other day I choke people when I teach because I teach so much. So I, I, I'd rather you choked and starve. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Take some time and chew on it. Um, well, actually, goes me to chapter six, verse ten. I want to show you this to Show this to you. He says, "May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as is in heaven." So this is teaching. See, when you see things like this, you either got to say that he's teaching the kingdom is now or the kingdom is eschatological, which simply means yet to come in the eschaton. In the end of the day is the final, final thing. The kingdom of God has not yet come in its fullness. And Jesus began to teach this. So the very first thing he says, he gives you, some say seven, but I like to say eight. We'll see in just a second. He gives you eight parables. Matthew chapter 13. Jesus teaches eight parables. I want to talk about them real quick in the next 15 minutes. In verse number 11, he says, You're permitted to understand the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. You should know what the kingdom of heaven is. What is the kingdom of heaven? It's a kingdom of, it's an aspect of the kingdom of God that came down from heaven, right? The kingdom that's coming down from heaven is prevailing over the earth. And God's using it to restore all things back to himself. He says, but you're permitted to understand the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but others are not. So interesting thing about it is that there's some things about the kingdom that Jesus is saying that most people do not understand about it. Even if you had been an interpreter of the law, a Pharisee or a Sadducee or one of the rabbis and scribes at the time, there's still things about it they did not understand. Even if you could talk about what Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah said about it, what Jesus is saying, getting back to the Mount of Transfiguration, is that he is the greatest interpreter of the law. Jesus is the greatest interpreter of the prophets. So whatever Jesus is saying about the kingdom of God, is should be final word on it. Even if it's something that maybe Jeremiah and Isaiah did not see about it. Everything the prophets saw is subject to what Jesus has to say about it because he's the son of God. If he was born of a virgin, he can pretty much say what he wants to say about the law and change it if he'd like to. And he did change it. And Jesus adds his own interpretation to the kingdom and he says, listen... There's a thing about it you don't see, and that is it's going to have to come through suffering. And he says that um, not only is it going to um, come with suffering, but the kingdom of God has to have um, a suffering king, and it's not going to see its fullness and consummation right away. And so the Greek word for mysterion, if you're taking notes, we always like to talk about this word because it seems very... You know, this people love to talk about mysterion because everyone loves esoterical things. They love to talk about hidden secrets that nobody else knows. That's good. I mean, it's fine. But that's why this word is of interest to so many people. And it simply means the secret thoughts, plans and dispensations of God which are hidden from the human reason. It means people are missing this stuff. It was proclaimed to everyone but understood by few. And Jesus is going to start revealing these mysteries. Uh In such a way that you should be able to understand it. And the mysteries of the kingdom is the key to understanding the unique element in Jesus' teaching about the kingdom. Write this down. This is important if you're taking notes. Before the end of the age and the coming of the kingdom in glorious power, it was God's purpose that the powers um, of his coming kingdom should enter into human history. To accomplish the defeat of Satan's kingdom and to set at work the dynamic power of God's redemptive reign among man. And right now it occurs in the spirit realm, involves the defeat of Satan and the impartation of men to the blessings of God. So the kingdom of God is at work in the spirit realm. Satan has been defeated. He's put under the feet of Christ. He's put under the authority of Christ. But before everything comes to an end and the kingdom is consummated, God wanted to interrupt human history, defeat Satan's kingdom, and set at work his power among those who are being redeemed until it comes to its final consummation. Are you here? So whereas, let me explain like this, so whereas the Jews thought that maybe it was going to come right away and happen in an instant, what God said was well, not going to happen that way. First, it's going to come. It's going to break in when Jesus came. The kingdom of God smashed right into the earth and, and, and into the and, into uh, the affairs of man. Boom! Here comes the kingdom of God, smashing into the affairs of man, and they're going to coexist alongside each other. Satan's been defeated. Satan's been struck down. We talked about last week in Genesis that the reason why Satan is angry and making war on the saints is because he has been defeated. His time is short. That's where persecution comes from. That's why people laugh at Christians and mock them and make fun of them. That's Satan buffeting Christians because of their faith in Christ. Because these two things are realities against each other. And then those things are going to continue to coexist until Jesus comes and sets up his kingdom finally. And finally smashes and puts down all this rebellion that we have. That's how it's going to come. That's not what the Jews expected. You guys hear? You guys should be understanding. Okay. So Jesus taught it in Seven different parables. Number one, he talked about the four, the four soils. We know this scripture. Word of faith people know this scripture all day long. This is what it means. That when you look at the sowing of the seed, he sowed it on four different soils. This means that the sowing and the preaching of God's kingdom is only going to have in this age partial success. How many times, you know, people say, well, it has complete success. The word doesn't return void. Of course it doesn't return void in the sense that when a heart opens itself up to receive it, it's going to do its work. It's going to be planted. But how much of the seed was wasted? 75% of it. Hardened soil. It was the stony soil. There was the thorny soil. And there was the wayside soil. Fell by the wayside. Some people didn't pay attention to it. Then there was other people that came along and they... Tried to, uh, they were, persecution and affliction came. They didn't want anything to do with it. And they had the cares of this word, the lust of other things, the deceitfulness of riches. It's the rich young ruler. All different reasons. And you know what? It would be an interesting study to track how when Jesus preached the word of God, people responded to the word. Rich young ruler said, you know what? I got cares. I I don't want nothing to do with this. And then there was people that, you find the disciples, they find they're going to get persecuted. the Disciples were cowards at first. They said, you know what? We're going to get killed. Let's leave. Let's leave Jesus. Peter denied Christ. People are giving up the kingdom for many different reasons. So, you know what this is teaching? Preaching the Word is going to have partial success. Even as we speak it now, how many people hear the Word of God, they don't respond to it because they feel like there's a million different other things they have. I was telling somebody the other day, I said, Listen, let me read you this. Actually, if you don't mind, I want to read this text message I said to somebody who was telling me in their life they're not fulfilled. And I, I prayed about what I wanted to write a text message to this person. This is what I said to him. This is my text. He says, I don't feel fulfilled in my career or easier said any place in my life. I'm not a minister. I speak of God and the truth whenever it presents itself. I know I could be a better Christian. He says, but I still feel, even in my closest times, unfulfilled with God. You know what I responded and said? First off, I know ministers who, aren't, who, I know ministers who are unfulfilled because they aren't doing what God asked them. I also know many non-ministers who are, who are 100% fulfilled because they have discovered what the Lord wants them doing and have surrendered and committed their lives to doing it. Fulfillment is a relative term. If you're looking to find it in acquiring a certain lifestyle, it's not sure you'll ever get it. And when you do one day, it will be gone. But if you define fulfillment as obeying the Lord, which doesn't always mean telling people about God, there are all the things involved, no matter the cost, then you're going to find it and it's going to last. If you talk to Jesus about this when he was on the earth, he would tell you that the only way to know him and experience life is to be willing willing to follow him at any moment and detach from whatever you hold dearer to your heart than him. And if that's too great of a price or you don't think it would bring fulfillment doing that, then he would, he would leave it up to you to find it yourself without his help because that's all he would ever offer you, a chance to follow him. It's pretty deep. It's a good text. But that's what Jesus is teaching. Then he says about the tares, and we know the parable of the tares that at night someone slapped and an enemy came and he told terrors among the wheat and, the, and, and the, 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 the owner says, no, 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 don't separate them now because you're ruining the wheat. What this is simply seeing is that the kingdom has come into history. Right? But here's the question. Has the kingdom coming into history disrupted society? Has not. It simply means that as long as the sons of the kingdom have received God's reign, that they must continue to live in this age intermingle with the wicked in a mixed society. New York City right now, how many Christians are there? Plenty. How many Christians are here? Plenty. But how many evil people are there? Plenty. So you see a mixed society. And then Jesus talked about the parable of the muscle seed in chapter 13 verse 31 to 32. And this is what Jesus was simply saying is that the Jews expected the kingdom to come as a great tree under which they could take shade. They expected to come in power and full authority where they could be relieved from the persecution of uh, the Romans. And Jesus was saying that it doesn't matter how uh, you think the kingdom should come as this massive manifestation. What you need to understand is that first the tiny seed is going to be planted and then it's going to turn into a large tree. And If you look at Christianity over time, it started as 12 disciples following Jesus. And look what you have now, a billion followers all over the earth. Maybe less than a billion. I don't know, maybe more than a billion. And guess what's going to happen? It's not even the number of people. That's not even what he's referring to is how many people are going to follow it. What it's referring to is God's reign one day is going to be over all the earth. There are a lot of countries right now that don't want anything to do with God's reign. Look at all the communist countries still. They don't know Bibles. What Jesus is saying is that guess what? One day his reign is going to be all in all and there's not going to be one square inch of this planet that is not under its reign. And then he talks about the leaven. Um... And it's a similar idea to the tares, and that similar idea to uh, the terrors, and that is that you, you look at leaven inside of wheat, it's hard to perceive the victory that's accomplishing. You have a little leaven that's put in slowly, but surely what's going to happen is that leaven's going to overtake the whole earth. So there's a victory that you may be not able to see. But it's it just as leaven leavens the whole thing, it's sure to happen. And then Jesus talked about the pearl. And what he's talking about is that if it costs everything in your life, it's a small price to gain the kingdom. Many people overlook the kingdom of God. Many people, How many know people today that are overlooking the kingdom? Here's the kingdom, but they don't see it. They don't pay any attention to it. And you know what Jesus is saying? I don't, I don't have time to read all this. The kingdom of God is like... Well, I'll read this. This is real short. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered in a hidden field. In his excitement, he hid it and sold everything he owned to get enough money to buy the field. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant on the lookout for choice pearls. When he discovered the pearl of great value, he sold everything he owned and bought it. This is simply saying that some people are going to overlook the kingdom, but there's going to be people that don't overlook the kingdom, and when they find the kingdom, they're going to sell everything they have. They're going to abandon their whole life to it, give their whole life. What does that look like? That's between you and God. And then it talks about the net. Verse number 47 kingdom of heaven is like a fishing net that was thrown into the water and caught fish of every kind. That's all the parable says. Then it says, when the net was full, they dragged it onto the shore, sat down, sorted the good fish into the crates, but threw away the bad ones. That's the way it will be at the end of the world. The angels will come and separate the wicked people from the righteous, throwing the wicked into the fiery furnace where they will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Do you understand these things? They said, yes, we do. What Jesus is saying is that the future separation of men uh, happens at the judgment. And that... This parable is simply adding the fact that the community created by the working of the kingdom in the world is not going to be a pure community until the consummation of the kingdom. Which means simply that you have church. We go preach the gospel, it attracts people from all over the place, does it not? The gospel attracts people from everywhere, from all over. That doesn't necessarily mean they're following Christ just means that there's going to be a mix. People hear the gospel, they want in for a lot of reasons. They want to come to church. They want to be believers of the gospel because they think they can get something out of the church. They think that following Jesus is going to promise them all sorts of things, and they're not in it for the right reasons. And the only way you're going to ever sort this out is when the judgment happens. Why did you, and were you attracted to the message of the kingdom? For what reason? And then, um, I won't get into that. But then, what you happen is, give me five. Can I take five more minutes? I'm almost done. Matthew. Okay. Then you have um, Jesus, and he teaches his parables. The Olivet Olivet discourse was in Matthew chapter twenty-four and chapter twenty-five, and this we could spend weeks discussing what Jesus meant in Matthew chapter twenty-four or Matthew chapter twenty-five. But basically, Jesus was teaching that uh, in twenty-four, one through twenty-eight. That Jerusalem was going to see its destruction, you know the scripture that says where you see the let's go to matthew twenty four real quick um, not all of this matthew chapter twenty four is future yet not all of it has been fulfilled. let's see here let me give you an example are you guys hanging in there mm-hmm. matthew chapter twenty four um Oh, dear God, where's it at? Oh, boy. Uh, I can't find the scripture right now. I didn't write it in my nose. But anyway... We won't get into it, and so then Jesus also speaks of his second coming in the most distant future. He's not talking about in those days following the suffering. So Matthew twenty four thirty nine. Let's see it. People didn't realize what was going to happen. The flood came and swept it away. This is the way that it will be when the Son of Man comes. And uh, Jesus tells two parables to illustrate this: the ten virgins, the, excuse me, three, the parable of the talents, the parable of the sheep and goats, to demonstrate that it's important to prepare for the return of Christ. Now, this is the kingdom of God in Matthew's Gospel taught quickly. The point is this, is that the Kingdom of God is a hope and expectation of the Jewish people. That one day, i got two minutes, that one day the Messiah would come, and we're going to see in, in a couple weeks that the term Messiah was not always used in terms of the Christ. Anybody that was appointed and anointed for something was used this term Messiah. When you're saying that you're anointed, Messiah just means that you were picked for something. could mean a lot of different things. doesn't necessarily mean specifically the Messiah. And Israel was expecting that a Messiah was going to come and restore God's people. And you saw it was going to come to the son of Abraham, going to come to the son of David, that this was going to be the restoration of a Davidic kingdom in accordance with God's promise to David. This is how it was going to have to go down. And according to other prophecies outside of Second Samuel, Isaiah and other, other prophets, is that he was going to come, he was going to reestablish his kingdom, he was going to be a person that works miracles and signs and wonders, he was going to open up the eyes of the lion, like uh, uh, it says in Hosea, he would have healing in his tassels, and this is all the stuff that Jesus was fulfilled. But the one thing that was uh, a scandal about this, according to Apostle Paul in First Corinthians chapter 1, was this whole idea of the cross. Why did, this, why did the Messiah suffer and die? Because if he suffered and died, they felt like he wouldn't be able to establish his political kingdom. But Jesus said, this is not a political kingdom. This kingdom is not political. This kingdom is a kingdom that is, it is heavenly. It's coming down from heaven and it's going to make war on Satan. And it's going to overcome him and it's going to defeat him. And the way that I'm going to get ultimate victory is I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die on the behalf of my people so that in identifying with my death through faith. We're going to see how the Apostle Paul makes sense of this now. Through faith. In my second coming, you're going to be able to have this life. And there's going to be other things that we're going to see that uh, people make sense of it in different ways. Like the Apostle Paul and James and Peter, they make sense of Jesus' message. But what is happening in the New Testament is God is restoring the order back to the earth through Jesus Christ. And it's not an earthly kingdom. And we're going to see that when the Apostle Paul gets his hands on this message, he's going to turn it around. And he's going to say, listen, this is not just for Israel. If he would have set up his established kingdom, it would have been a one nation for Jews, ruling all over the people, and this wasn't it. Jesus came to include all people into the earth. That's the marginalized, that is, the people that are uh, the the outcasts of society, that's men, that's women, and that's all the nations of the earth are going to be included in this. And we're going to see this in just a few days, in just a few weeks, is that when you see the term church, church is a very kingdom concept. The church is not just a bunch of people that go to church at a white steeple, and it's the regathered people of Israel that includes all nations now, and, it's not, and it is not. And we're going to see the idea of a spiritual Israel that Israel is not Israel by the flesh; it's by the spirit. And when you see church, it's the idea of gathering. The word church is used, uh, ecclesia is used in the Greek Septuagint to mean synagogue. And Paul never used the word synagogue. Paul always uses the word ecclesia. Ecclesia doesn't mean church the way we think about it. It means the regathered people of Israel who includes, it's not Israel anymore, it's all the nations of the earth. So when you see this idea of church, what are you talking about? You're not not talking about just a body. You're talking about people that have been gathered all apart, all over the world, who are now part of God's restored order to be God's people again who are now building up to the consummation of all things. So have to think about him, man you know? did you enjoy it tonight yeah now that you've heard the light of today connect with us go to our website lightoftoday.org write us at po box 403 wald lake michigan 48390 or tweet chris palmer at twitter.com forward slash chris palmer our podcasts are free and updated regularly so make sure to share them with a friend and tune in again to the light of today with chris palmer